Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If we vote for Trump, we're Nazis, according to Donnie Deutsch, uh, according to James Clapper. I think President Trump has learned um, that there are a certain number of Americans who are not going to see our fact checks. That he's increasingly relying on sources like Fox News to get his intelligence rather than the professionals in his own government. Donald Trump is learning that there's more upside than downside to telling lies, and I think he'll continue telling them until the very end. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who says his opponents had better just take it easy because he has an incredible base. Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And those vaguely menacing comments came in a televised interview with Maria Bartiromo on Sunday. Well, you could call it an interview or you could call it what it was, namely more bootlicking on Fox News. Here's a bit from the transcript. And the markets feel like they're trusting you at this point. I think they trust me and the farmers trust me. They do. Now, there's no collusion with me. There's no Russia with me. There's no nothing. It's a it's honestly, it's a disgrace. I purposely said I'm not getting involved. Let it just go. Uh, You know, they found nothing. Nobody has found anything. I know. You know what? But you're doing the right thing on tariffs. Well, one you're of the, doing the right the thing on pushing back on China as well. Most people understand to. that they've been stealing from us right. for decades. My God, it was like an interview with Vladimir Putin on RT. Bartiromo praised Trump's tax cuts. She praised his deregulation plans. She endorsed his views on immigration. In fairness, she mildly challenged him on trade in North Korea. But that's out of the Putin playbook, too. A little phony challenge makes for more credible propaganda. At this point, the Trump White House's relationship with Fox seems to be moving beyond state television to full merger. The Bartiromo interview was the 24th one Trump has given Fox News or Fox Business. That's two-thirds of all his interviews since becoming president. He loves hiring people from Fox. His next communications director, Bill Shine, is the former top executive there. Trump speaks to Rupert Murdoch weekly, if not daily. He speaks to Sean Hannity daily, if not hourly. Trump's son is dating Kimberly Guilfoyle, another Fox personality. No, not Eric Don Jr., the extra dumb one. You know the expression, letting the fox in the hen house? Well, Fox News is now taking over the White House. Coming up on the show, are American liberals clueless about the white working class? I'll be back with Joan C. Williams, the author of a terrific book on the subject. But first, preparations for the Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki are underway. We bring you the president's national security advisor, John Bolton, trying to figure out what Vladimir Putin expects. Okay, uh, President Putin, thanks so much for sitting down with me. 
John Bolton, welcome to Moscow. Yes, I'm happy to be here. In preparation for the summit next month between you and President Trump, we just want to get ahead of this and talk to you about what you expect to get out of the meeting. I talked to the president. He doesn't have very many specific expectations. So if you do, we just want to make sure that we're able to address those ahead of time. Yes, John Bolton, we'll be in Helsinki for the summit. And what I would like to happen first is uh, President Trump come into the room. I will be hiding behind a plant. Hmm. He will be able to see me, but he pretend that he can't. And then, just when he look around and don't know what is happening, I jump and I want him to act very surprised and then scream. Okay, so I I'm just making sure I got that right. You're going to be... Uh, John Bolton, I'm joking, John oh, Bolton. Oh, oh, oh. John Bolton. You're joking. It's just making a joke, okay? Oh, okay. Yes, no, I, I talk to President Trump frequently. Oh, okay. So you don't need... You, you're not going to be partially obscured by a plant, and he doesn't have to pretend he doesn't no, see John, you. No, okay. John Bolton. Do you think that's real? Well, I, well, I no, of course not. I, oh, sorry, my mustache is in my mouth. Uh, no, that that that's, that that's, that sounds good. That sounds no, good. but to, but but for serious, John Bolton, John Bolton. What we really need here is, uh, do you know American singer Christina Aguilera? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, who's that? Christina Aguilera. Oh, Christina Aguilera. <clears throat> yes, yes, you yes, need yes. a bottle. Mm -hmm. Yes, if President Trump bring her oh. with, and she play a tiny concert. Before oh. the meeting and all throughout concert, she makes strong eye contact with just me. And when she finished her last song, she just say in a way that I really believe, you are my best friend. Okay, let me just make sure I get this. So, um, Christina John Aguilera. Bolton, John Bolton, it's a joke. Oh, you're joking again. Oh, Perhaps you don't know Russian sense of humor. Oh, I, I guess I don't. I, to be honest, I actually don't know much about Christina Aguilera either, so I was kind of panicking there. <laughs> You're funny. But we are. there are some things we really want to talk about. Okay, this. good. Yeah, let's go ahead and uh, maybe put the joking aside for a second uh, to really get to the actual uh, expectations you might have. Okay. This is going to be a great summit. And what I really just want is for President Trump to come, and I want him to issue a public statement that Crimea belongs to Russia and no hard feelings and we can just take it. <laughs> you almost got me again. You almost got me again. <laughs> okay. I'm not fucking around, John Bolton. That sketch was improvised in our Brooklyn studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman. Joan C. Williams is author of the very provocative book, White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, and she's a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings. Joan, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for the invitation. I'm delighted. <laughs> now, your, your book was based on a piece you did in the Harvard Business Review that came out, I think, right after the 2016 election. But you must have started writing on this topic before the election, right? Well, it, this um, actually the original the original piece um, I tried to pitch and get published in 2009 when I wrote the book that preceded um, White Working Class. But I could not get anyone's attention. <clears throat> it was like it just fell into a black hole. So I have been 
I'm mar- I'm very much a silver spoon girl. I married into a white working class family. Uh, actually, I just celebrated my 40th wedding anniversary. So, I congratulations. Spent, yeah, I have spent decades bridging what I call the class culture gap. Well, you know that raises an interesting point. I mean, I think one of the um, things people lament is that there seems to be much less class mixing, class boundary crossing in marriage and romantic relationships. Do you think you, a person like you, would be less likely to have married a person like your husband or a person from your husband's background, I should say, 40 years on? Well, you know, there there used to be quite a lot of mixing because um, elite men married um, beautiful non-elite women. Now there's much more, um, I mean, in, the, in a sense, what we've lost in gender equality, what we've gained in gender equality has made the class um, self-sorting worse. That's what sociologists call assortative mating, right? Assortative mating, People's increasing tendency to marry people Mm -hmm. like themselves. So why, I mean, just speaking, if you can, from personal experience, how how did it happen that your your marriage doesn't sound like it conformed to that older pattern either? So why why are you a rare example of uh, this uh, class line crossing? Yeah, I was um, carrying on a family tradition. My um, my New England wasp father married my New York Jewish mother in 1946. So <clears throat> we have been pretty consistent in my family with um, identifying the biggest taboo and then marrying across. <laughs> so, but by description, I mean you're a, you're a liberal uh, San Francisco based law professor. You come from an upper upper middle class background. Are you at- so attuned to this? topic of liberal condescension towards working class people because of this, or are there other reasons that you're interested in it? Well, I'm, I'm also a scholar of social inequality. <clears throat> so I have been fascinated by how social inequality structures everyday um, interactions for many decades and have studied it. I've studied um, chiefly gender and race, but I've also studied um, social class. So this is yeah, I've lived it, and this is what I have dedicated my professional career to as well. I guess we should try to get clear on definitions a little bit at the outset. When you talk about the white working class, you are not talking about the working poor, people who have minimum wage jobs, people largely, say, without health insurance, right? I mean, you're talking about about people who in the old days would have been described as the American middle class. I mean, people mm-hmm. with what? Yes. Family incomes of, I don't know, what, $50,000, $75,000? Well, family income, as you know, can be tricky. The way we define them is the middle 53% of Americans. Um, we define the the professional managerial elite as families in the top 20% of American incomes who had at least one college grad, and then the poor is the bottom 30%, and then the, the, the missing middle um, in the middle. I actually wanted to call them the middle class because that's what they are. Um, it is not poor people who voted for Trump. Only 12% of, of truly low-income people voted for Trump. Um, <clears throat> what uh, the collapse of support in um, certain key states was among the whites in this middle income group. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it struck me that that issue is at the core of what you're talking about because these people think of themselves as middle class, want to think of themselves as middle class, 
and are hanging on to many of the old values of, of the older middle class. Yet this professional managerial elite, the 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 coastal liberals, if if you will, think about them in a very different way. They think of them as closer to working poor, as as vulnerable, as falling out of the middle class, right? Well, I mean, there's a complicated structure of um, what Ali Hochschild would call emotion rules. I mean, the coastal elites, we know quite a lot about the poor, both the global poor and the American poor, and we know how we're supposed to feel about them, very empathetic, slightly guilty. When it comes to blue-collar Americans or Americans in the middle, the elite emotion rules actually are quite different, and you can see them by looking at situation comedies. Um, Homer Simpson is a good example, affable, stupid, and fat. You think of Archie Bunker in All in the Family, that famous TV show in the 70s. Racist, sexist, stupid, and fat. So um, part of the problem is that we have these dramatically different um, emotion rules where the elite self-corrects when it comes to people who are truly poor, but they just act, they don't self-correct when they come to the middle class. And that is really fuel to the fire because the middle class, the middle class in, in wealthy countries, including the United States, have been the, the people who have really been most hurt by globalization. So the important work of Raj Chetty and his group has shown that virtually all, of, all Americans born in the 1940s did better than their parents, but today it's less than half. And other studies um, by Lackner and Otour show that global, this is the group that has really been hurt by globalization. So you have this, um, this sort of snobbish condescension at the same time as you ha- see the withering for this group of the American dream. And the result has been some pretty ugly stuff. So you mentioned the Simpsons and All in the Family sitcoms, which, you know, in some ways are not without – I mean, I remember All in the Family. Not, there, there are moments of sympathy for Archie Bunker. But when you talk about this condescension and class cluelessness, what else are you thinking about? I'm thinking of, uh, of this class culture gap. The, um, the, the working class, I mean, some of this differs by race. Most of what I'm now going to describe does not differ by race. It's just elite versus non-elite. But I'll talk about it in terms of the white working class, since they're the people who are politically kind of are holding their future in our hands a bit. So they're really focused on self-discipline, um, the kind that gets you up every day and, and to a not very fulfilling job on time without an attitude for 40 years straight. Um, and um, they're very focused and they have a lot of respect for the traditional institutions that aid um, self, that kind of self-discipline, religion, military, the family values, um, and tradition. Uh, my crowd is very different. Um, we're focused not on so much on self-discipline as on self-development. That's mm-hmm. why we're rushing around our kids to 14 different lessons. Um, and we tend to value not the tried and true, but we tend to go for novelty over stability. I, I call it artisanal everything. Artisanal everything is really a way of dis- displaying our sophistication, which is a way of displaying our human capital to others others in the society, especially others in the elite. So 
that that is the class culture gap that we see reflected in all these kinds of culture wars on abortion um, and a lot on family values. It's precisely that. I mean, you do a terrific job in the book illuminating these differences in values about about things like family and work and religion. But my question is where the condescension comes in. And I'm not doubting that working class people feel that sting of con- condescension coming from coastal elites, for want of a better term. But wh- where do you see it? I mean, where do you, th- do you think, it, do you think that is, do you think the condescension is real or is it just misunderstanding across a gap in belief systems and values? I mean, I think elites don't see that their folkways are just folkways that unselfconsciously reflect their privilege. For example, I mean, I'm somebody who's worked on rights for women and and gender rights, including LGBTQ rights, have been great of great concern to me, uh, and I truly value them. But I also see how the fact that they're so central to me stems from my felt entitlement to self-development. I also think that the condescension is very real. I think the middle classes respect for traditional institutions like the military. In fact, there was just a, a very funny... Uh, do you know the show Silicon Valley? Yeah. There's a funny episode where the clueless CEO, Richard Hendricks, outed a developer as a Christian. And it's just like, oh, my God, oh, my God, don't you outed me as a Christian. I'm never going to be able to have lunch in this town again. I'm so ashamed. Being LGBTQ or trans, that's a, that's a source of social honor in my crowd. Being outed as a Christian, that's kind of a disaster. So that shows you the the kind of everyday... You know, we've heard of microaggressions in the context of gender and the context of race, and and all of that is very real. But there are a lot of microaggressions that stem from uh, social class as well, and that's a good example. And does this work in both directions? I mean, do you think the misunderstandings, mischaracterizations, mockery of educated elites uh, by working class people matters? I mean, certainly those stereotypes exist, too. Yeah, I mean, people, class migrants, people I call class migrants who were brought up in non-elite backgrounds and have entered the elite often say that their family and and friends they grew up with say that's the education talking. Yeah, I mean, I do think the hard feelings and the belittling go both ways, um, but I also think that I'm a social subordination person, and I think when um, a group on top is deeply insulting a group um, beneath them, I kind of think it's incumbent on the group for the group on top to get its act together, not to wait until the group that has been unfairly insulted apologizes first. But, I mean, quite apart from what I believe, this politics isn't working for me. I don't know if it's working for you, but it's not working for me. <laughs> because and, of the um, result we've gotten. Yeah, bridging this class culture gap is the first step to um, to stepping back from some of the truly shocking things that are happening in our country. Why do you think it is, then, that, that wealthier white Americans are able to be sympathetic towards poor people, people of color, but not towards the white working class? Why, is that a gap in imagination? What's, what's, why do you think that's true? I think actually it's very self-serving, and I don't mean to paint my, myself and others like me. And, uh, but, uh, I mean, the bottom line is the way my crowd describes 
where we are is merit. People always go like, oh, my God, you work so hard, Joan. You've earned everything you've had. And I always look at them and say, yes, yeah, so do hotel housekeepers. You know, so do plumbers. Um, but the, the way that the elite in the United States explains its privilege is by merit. And it's very, um, if, if it's not by merit, uh, you know, to acknowledge that people who didn't go to college didn't have the opportunity, as I did, to go to Yale, Harvard, and MIT, could never get near them, to ad- admit that one of the reasons I went to Yale, Harvard, and MIT is because I came from an elite family, um, then uh, I have to face my social privilege in a way that's very uncomfortable. I mean, liberals do think that the white working class votes against its own interest, getting rid of, of – wanting to get rid of guaranteed health care, supporting tax cuts for the rich. So there is a prevalent view that there is a kind of uh, false consciousness or at least a misunderstanding of what's good for them. Is that a part of the condescension you're talking about? And is that – do you think that view is wrong? Yeah, I mean, I think that is part and parcel of the contribution uh, of the of the condescension that I'm talking about. I think the the really shocking thing that I ask people to bend their minds around is that the white working class actually thought Trump was their best choice, even though they saw him for all of what he is. They thought he was their best choice, and. That's because progressives have not focused on the evisceration of the middle class. They often view immigrants through a very empathetic human rights lens and working class whites through a very neoliberal, the race is to the swift and you're not it lens. So I, it's, it's totally true. I mean, those tax cuts, you know, the middle class gets forty-seven cents, and the um, you know the the top one percent get forty-seven million billion dollars. Um, you can tell I'm not talking like an economist there, but the fact is that the Democratic Party has so failed the blue-collar whites that even union members voted for Trump, much to the aghast horror of their leaders. Um, and so I think instead of saying they're voting against their own self-interest, we should realize that if um, uh, if we as progressives don't offer an alternative for why good jobs disappeared and how we can get them back for the American middle class, the only person who is the person who's dominating that ta- that conversation is the far right and Donald Trump. You know, there I do not believe that that they're going to bring steel back to to Youngstown, so to speak. But I I think that that what's happening now is because of this class condescension, a lot of this economic anxiety is getting translated into racism and anti-immigrant fervor. And I think we have to offer another alternative. And the way to do that is to say, look, what's happened here is that you have lost touch with the American dream. We're the party who's going to give that back to you and to Americans, hardworking Americans of all race, colors, and creeds. I mean, you 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 bring up race and racism, and and it's possible that part of the condescension is being very quick to diagnose that in Donald Trump supporters. But but obviously, it's a threat. It's there. How do you propose to deal with it? How do we talk about the racism of the white working class without 
alienating them or being condescending. Yeah, I mean, I think the first step is to realize that they're not the only whites that are th- that suffer from racism. Indeed. Um, the elite prides itself on merit, and so it stereotypes people of color as lacking in merit, and that's documented by study after study. If you give people identical resumes, Greg and Jamal, Jamal needs eight additional years of experience to get the same number of callbacks as Greg. So there's a lot of blame to go around about racism. And I think it's really important to, to call out racism wherever we find it. We have a very, very ugly history. On the other hand, to have privileged white people deflecting blame for racism onto less privileged white people and using that as an excuse not to be responsive to their legitimate economic concerns... I think that's just using anti-racism as an excuse for snobbery. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the 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 connection you made there that there was an excuse for not caring. That's that the that's the part I would dispute. I mean, I think it's maybe more an obstacle to to a, an alliance, right? In that the liberal elites, when they see some degree of open racism, and you may be entirely right that they that, that the liberal elites are racist too in many ways, but they don't express racism. So it's the expression of racism that is such an obstacle to their being on the same team. Yeah, there was a really important study to come out um, that received far too little attention. It was called something like Five Kinds of Trump Voters. And it pointed out that very different groups of people voted for Trump. Some of them were just country club Republicans, you know, like they're going to vote for any Republican. But there were two groups that were less privileged groups who voted very strongly for Trump. One of them was kind of the nativists, and they were the alt-right is a good example of this. Their central focus is on race and um race suicide and nationalism and i don't think i don't think we're going to get those people i mean we would never turn into who we would have to turn into in order to get those people i actually don't think we want those people but there's a a different group of trump voters who also is is not this elite this country club elite their their chief concern is economic issues and that's the group of trump voters that I think that progressives should be reaching out to and sending a really strong message that to the extent that you're talking about taking kids away from their parents and race, you know, open racism, like kind of that's, we're not, we don't go there. But I mean, I just, I just saw a poll in this. I mean, there's, there's an amazing amount of support, majority support among Trump voters, men in particular, for for the policy of separating families. I mean, I was amazed. I thought if there's anything that's going to part company there, it's going to be that. Yeah. And it didn't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's also a masculinity piece that we can we can talk about, but the 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 fact is this was a very close election. We don't uh, you know, too much of this analysis is the average Trump voter this, the average Trump voter that. What what we need in order to turn this country around is to stop focusing on averages and to start a looking for coalition partners who share our concern for economic justice and to the extent that they have been gone have gone down the path of um, sort of these racializing the problem they're they're not deeply committed to that in some ways 
the fact that we don't have a conversation about class in this country means that I think they are using the categories that we've handed them, race, gender. And so when they say, I know that I am losing touch with the American dream, what they're attributing to it as race, what we need to say is, look, this is happening to people of color too. What is happening is that you are losing touch with the American dream, and we are going to make sure that we deliver a good, good, solid, middle-class standard of living to everyone who's willing to work hard in this country, regardless of race, color, or creed. And I think we would, we would get enough. We wouldn't get them all. We'd, as I explained, we don't want them all. We would get enough. I mean, a lot of it depends on whether you have a, a candidate or a leader who expresses that kind of solidarity and even comes from that kind of background. Bill Clinton did. I mean, he didn't have this problem in the way that Hillary Clinton had it. And you can mm-hmm. say that's partly because of gender, but of course, it's also partly because of, of class. I mean, Bill Clinton grew up poor, lower class in in the south and Hillary Clinton grew up middle class upper middle class in the in the upper midwest right <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's deeply gender but it's also deeply class you're yeah. right about that but there there are plenty of people in the economic party i'm uh, sorry in the economic party in the democratic <laughs> party who um who have work middle middle class roots you did say i, mean, I, I was Joe Biden Elizabeth Warren and Elizabeth Warren has, um, you know, her, I, I, my understanding is some of her brothers are in blue-collar jobs. Sherrod Brown, a lot of people have them. I don't think people know that about Elizabeth Warren. In fact, the, the, the right has already been quite successful in painting her as the somehow the epitome of a kind of liberal elitism. Yeah, I mean, I always say I'm a I'm a class explainer, not a not a candidate chooser. So I don't, um, you know, I don't pretend to understand all the wonderful candidates that the Democrats potentially have. But I do understand the message that whoever it is should be sending in order to pick up this group of Trump voters who is very, very upset at um, their economic vulnerability in the same way that a lot of other Democrats are upset and a lot of other people, a lot of people of color are upset. Just as a last question, Joan, where else do you see any signs of hope in terms of this class divide being crossed and Democrats maybe beginning to figure out how to talk to the white working class in a less condescending way. You know, I've um, I see I see signs of hope um, both in the you know the the quote progressive candidates and in the the quote moderate candidates that have <clears throat> that have been winning. Very often, David Leonard actually had a good piece in the New York Times saying that, you know, whether they call themselves progressive or um, moderate, they're talking about jobs. And that is, you know, that is the one first thing that people need to talk about, jobs. And, you know, minimum wage is um, is important. It's really important for for poor people, but minimum, you know, $15 minimum wage is not what's going to appeal to these voters. That's actually what they're trying to avoid. What they want is to be able to work hard, exercise self-discipline, and get that three-bedroom cinder block house. Well, it's, jo- it's jobs instead of benefits. I mean, that's the important it's very part, much right? Jobs instead of benefits. That's that's the key racial difference between the black working class and the white working class. The white working class is very judgmental of of um, people who take government benefits that they quote haven't earned. Although, 
and w- and when they take benefits, them. they they just pretend they don't. Well, they also feel that they earned them, so they take Social Security, um, Medicare, and disability, which um, they construct as benefits that are being earned, uh, that they have earned, as opposed to SNAP and um, and TANF, so-called welfare, that are quote just handouts. So that's um, that's. I think the Democrat, Democrats have been really clueless in allowing Republicans to maneuver them into a situation where um, instead of going for universal benefits um, that are, quote, earned, we have focused on means-tested benefits. And that has really deserved not only the party, but the people who were trying to help, because those benefits tend to be so politically vulnerable that they tend to be scarce and stigmatized. I've been speaking to Joan C. Williams. Her book is White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. Joan, thanks for joining me on the show. My pleasure. Delighted to talk to an audience like Slate's. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Are you following us on Twitter? Our handle is at RealTrumpCast. It's a great place to let us know what you think of the show. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast, and happy 4th of July.